0: Mexico, February, two months ago, 71 prisoners, mainly evangelical Christians, were called to a meeting at the M8 prison, or Mate prison, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, where they are being held to be told that their appeal for justice has been rejected. The group has been unjustly imprisoned in Mexico for the past eight years on false charges. Most of them are evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. They now face sentences of up to 36 years. They've been there for eight years. Although clear evidence of their innocence was presented and accepted by the Mexican attorney general, it appears that pressure on the judges from supporters of the Sapasta uprising has resulted in their appeal being turned down. China, November 8th. 2005. Kai Ya, a prominent Beijing house church leader, was sentenced to three years in jail on charges relating to illegal business practices and fined 150,000 yen, about $18,500. Kai was arrested September 11, 2004, at a bus stop where he was dragged into a van by state security officers. Authorities were shocked to find that more than 200,000 pieces of printed Christian literature, including Bibles, in a storage room managed by Kai. Even though Pastor Kai had a business registered with the Chinese government, the business did not have a license to print religious material. The severe charges were brought against this pastor, even though the material was not sold for profit but was given out freely. It was also learned that Pastor Kai had been tortured with electric cattle prods to force a confession after his arrest in September 2004. The US Embassy sent an observer to to the first hearing for this case held in July 2005. But entrance was denied to our own US Embassy representatives. Religious persecution by the government appears to be on the upswing as the Olympics approach. Turkey, a couple of years ago, a Turkish convert to Christianity, Yakup Sindili, 32 years old, slipped into a coma and was in critical condition after being severely beaten with heavy blows to his head and face for distributing New Testaments in his hometown in northwestern Turkey by Islamic nationalists. According to doctors attending him at the Bursa State Hospital, Sindeli's coma had resulted from a blood clot that formed in the brain from his injuries. He is now recovering after more than 40 days in a coma. According to local believers, Sindili first expressed interest in Christianity about two years ago when he made a telephone call to a Du'a, a prayer hotline ministry begun by a local Protestant Christian group after Turkey's devastating 1999 earthquake. After reading the New Testament and coming to faith in Christ, Sindili began writing poems and songs He was a very faithful believer living by himself out there in northwestern Turkey. About a month ago, Sindili asked for some New Testaments for distribution. I don't know Yakup very well, said one pastor, but he is a very courageous man. Beaten to the point of a coma. Living with a broken body. Tortured into a confession. Sentenced to years in jail. Seventy-one prisoners already having served eight years in a Mexican jail. And we've heard what that's like. And then sentenced to 36 years altogether. One of the prisoners in the Mexican jail who serves as an elder in a church said, sometimes we wonder why we have been in prison for almost eight years. What is God's plan for us in all this? But we know that God is in control and we will be released when he desires it. So we just keep praying that he will release us soon. He couldn't have said it better. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, help us this morning to have an interest in these who've suffered so much. To value and appreciate their life as you do. And may we learn things that will help us to live our life. To live it in a way that will please you. And may Jesus Christ be praised. Not only by what he sees us do, but what he sees us thinking right at this very moment. For we ask this in his name. Amen. seems like such a waste. Years in disease-infested jails. Tortured. Beaten. Potential loss of eyesight or limbs. In the case of a useless limb, And for what? As far as ministry potential is concerned, few in that part of the world seem to listen. Even fewer seem to care. Who gives a rip? There are far more productive mission fields, mission opportunities, ministry opportunities around the world. It makes no sense. Human lives, many of them, in the prime of their life, 32 years old, Flush down the drain. And for what? Wait a minute. I hear Jesus saying something. He's saying, I'll tell you for what? For loyalty. For loyalty. Sometimes the price of loyalty to Jesus can be very high. It's just such loyalty our Lord knew existed in the church in Smyrna. Their loyalty was infamous. And it was also so pleasing to our Lord. But he wanted to encourage them to continue to be loyal. Because things were not going to get better. They were actually going to get worse. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful unto death. Our Lord highly values loyalty among his people. Just as you and I value loyalty in our friendships. I know of nothing that means more to me if I'm going to build a close friendship than to know that that person is loyal. And our Lord is like that as well. But when it comes to being loyal to Jesus Christ, sometimes the price of such loyalty can be very high. Last week as we looked at this passage, We were brought face to face with the high cost of being loyal to Jesus Christ for his followers. It meant enduring a lot of things, especially for his followers in the church at Smyrna. First of all, it meant works which hold up the truth of Christ. And of course, the most basic work of all is the work of saying, I believe in Jesus Christ of coming out of the closet, as we say today, and making known your faith. Second, they face tribulation, affliction, oppression, persecution, which leads to poverty, in fact, extreme poverty. The costs continue to mount. Fourthly, it leads to blasphemy. Those who hated them began to slander them and say abusive things about them, make charges against them that weren't true, just as they do today. And the outcome, finally, for many of them was prison, and for some of them, even death. It's a high price to pay for loyalty. But for the church in Smyrna, this was the price of loyalty. For the church during the 2nd and 3rd century A.D., this was the price of loyalty. And for churches in China and Turkey and Mexico today, this is the price of loyalty for some churches. And by the way, the area in Turkey where this man was arrested and beaten. Or pardon me, beaten. It's the same area, same region, where the church of Smyrna once existed 2,000 years ago. Jesus greatly values loyalty. Loyal followers who are faithful and devoted to Him, even in the face of death. And His message, therefore, to Smyrna, and to all his followers who face persecution, is stay loyal, stay faithful, stay devoted. Okay, Lord, I hear you. I heard last week's message. But what's the incentive? After all, you gave me eternal life, and it is eternal. You can't take it away. You said you wouldn't take it away. So, Lord, if I'm facing a boiling pot of oil... And it looks like they're going to put me in that oil. Why not just give in and tell them what they want to hear? Yes, Lord. You're saying that when others hear me stand tall for my Lord and say, I believe in Him in the face of such a horrible death, that they will be encouraged to come to faith? That many of the great revivals in the history of the earth, of the church, have been started because people were willing to stand up for their faith? I hear you, Lord. And I agree. But I still don't know how to find that motivation, that inner, that inner motivation to be willing to face a pot of boiling oil. A burning tire necklace, a firing squad, a Mexican prison. Even the rejection and the shame for what I believe by my friends. People that I've called my friends. It's just too painful, Lord. How do you expect me to remain loyal, Lord? Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. When our Lord Jesus Christ introduces himself in each one of these letters to these churches, he's writing to the angel, as we've said, it's sort of a a three-way conversation here for the church to overhear. But when he introduces himself to the church, he is introducing himself, the introduction he provides about himself provides a backdrop against which that particular church should measure what he's about to say. These introductions are sound bites, if you will, taken from the words that, he, that John had wrote in chapter 1, verses 13 to 18, where Jesus revealed himself to John. And he's taking clips from each one of those verses And he's using it as an introduction to these seven churches, but they're strategically placed and for good reason. You see, five out of the seven churches to whom he sends a letter in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation receive a stinging rebuke from Jesus. However, in the case of the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia, which we aren't talking about today, in the case of the church of Smyrna, his words are intended to encourage them to stay the course and remain loyal throughout their suffering ordeal. There's no stinging rebuke. How he introduces himself in verse 8 provides the backdrop for those words of encouragement. In essence, as Jesus introduces himself, he is saying in effect, I'm with you all the way. And let me tell you how. And We pick it up in verse 8. And he said to the angel in the church of Smyrna, These things says the first and the last. Jesus introduces himself as the first and the last. When Jesus uses this phrase to describe himself and his relationship to his people, he is capturing a phrase that the Lord God of the Old Testament used in relation with his people Israel. And I want to read just a couple of these verses or passages. In Isaiah 44, 6-9, we read this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Who can tell the future? Then let Him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed You, the ancient people, and the things that are coming shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. I told you from that time and declare it. You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Likewise, I hear Jesus saying to the church, I am the true God. I have declared the things that shall happen. I have ordained you, my people, the church. Nothing happens by accident. Everything that happens will serve my eternal purpose. Do not fear. Isaiah 48. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in a furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first and the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. As I read these words, I think of Jesus, and I hear him saying, For my glory I will do it. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. I am the creator. Whatever I determine to happen will happen. I have a purpose in your suffering. It will come to an end. It won't last forever. But I will be glorified in it. Everyone shall know of my grace toward you. And my love for you. And you shall know that I am the just one. Declaring you just because you share my life and declaring those who do not share it unjust. The One other portion of Scripture where we find these phrases, I am the first and the last, is in Revelation chapter 1 and then Revelation 22. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me and saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Then Revelation 22. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Again, in full view of these passages in Revelation, I hear the Lord Jesus Christ saying to the church at Smyrna, Do not fear. I have a purpose to test you for a time. I have purpose to reward you for your loyalty to me throughout your ordeal and your testing. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. When it's all said and done, you will see that I did work out all things after the counsel of my my own will, and that all things do work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That is why I created you. When it's all said and done, it will all be clear. This is the wallpaper that sets off the ordeal of suffering. But then one more statement. The Lord makes the wallpaper even more vivid with something that they've known since they believed, but which they need to always be remembering and going back to, especially when life seems to go south, as we say. Revelation 2.8, these things says the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. When Jesus introduces himself as the one who was dead and came to life, he's making it very clear to them. He's calling attention to the, to the fact that he is the resurrection and the life. This is brought out in Revelation 1:18, but I want you to notice what it really drives home. He's drawing these words from Revelation 1:18. He says, I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. I have the keys of Hades and of death. In the Bible, the spirits of those who have died are pictured in Hades. That is in a place separate from their bodies. For unbelievers, that place is a place of temporary torment away from the Lord. For believers, that place is a place of comfort with the Lord. Their spirits. In contrast, the bodies of both believers and unbelievers are pictured as being, in the Bible, as being held in the grip, a motionless grip of a grave. And when Jesus says that he was dead, he's referring to his own death and burial, the death and burial of his own body in this earth. However, when his spirit entered within his body and he came forth from the earth, rose again from the dead, it made it clear that he had power over death, power over Hades. It was a powerful statement indicating that he has the keys to free our spirits from Hades and our bodies from the grave. Keys are a symbol of authority in the Bible. Jesus has the authority to raise all who have been declared just by virtue of their faith in Him. To raise them into the fullness of everlasting life. And He has authority to raise all who have been declared unjust. To face judgment and to be forever condemned in a second death called the lake of fire or hell. What Jesus was saying to Christians in Smyrna and to all people who may be suffering and facing death at this time is, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against my church. For the believers in Smyrna who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, this would have brought great comfort to know that their troubles and what they were suffering, the loss of quality of life from being imprisoned, beaten, and hurt physically... The shortness of life, even death itself, that would be, this would be overcome, overcome by the one who had the keys to Hades and death. Furthermore, it would be a comfort to know that those who've caused their suffering and who refuse to turn and believe in Jesus, even at the moment of their testimony before him, will forever be judged and condemned to a second death in hell. When it's all said and done, everything will turn out well. For those who believe in Jesus in the city of Samaria, or pardon me, Smyrna, and indeed for all who suffer their faith in any church at any time in any place. But then Jesus goes on to tell them just how well it will turn out for them in the end. It will turn out well, that's guaranteed, but just how well will it turn out? Because that adds more motivation, if you will, inner motivation, an inner understanding of what we face in this life and the pressures that we're facing and what's at stake. In the midst of their poverty, he reminds them that they are rich. Verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. They were rich in present possessions. They were rich in present privileges. And they were rich in terms of their future inheritance. We're going to look more closely at that next week. But for now, it's important for us to remember that when you are poor and you're impoverished, what do you dream of? some of you have sort of raised yourself up by your own bootstraps. Because there was a point in your life when you were dealing with poverty and you were saying to yourself, I'll never be poor again. You dreamed about the day when you would be freed from the poverty and that you would enjoy a measure of wealth and riches. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's trying to remind them of just how rich they are and how rich they will be. We'll look at that in more detail next week. But there are some things that exceed the riches which have been reserved in heaven for those who believe in Jesus Christ and who have become and continue to be good and faithful servants. Something that will be given out to those who suffer because they refuse to abandon or renounce Jesus Christ in the face of persecution. It's called the crown of life. The crown of life, and we meet it in verse 10. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. That is, until death gives you some sense of relief. And in the midst of the suffering and the testing, be faithful. Remain devoted to me. Do not deny my name. Do hold it up before all people to see, and I will give you the crown of life. In the New Testament, there are two words that are used for crown one is the diadem. This is the crown that we find where it talks about, uh, in chapter 19 of Revelation, Jesus having many crowns, referring to his regal or kingly position. It's the crown of a king or a queen. This is not the crown referred to here in chapter 2, verse 10. The other word translated crown in the New Testament is the word Stephanos, Stephanos. A symbolic, symbolic crown, which is made of a wreath, a laurel wreath, consisting of several bent olive or pine twigs, and interlaced with flowers and grass and beautiful things, and then set down or laid down upon the head of someone who has been victorious. They were put around the heads, especially of athletes and soldiers. Athletes who had been victorious in competition, soldiers who had been victorious in battle. The Stephanos crown was symbolic and it always intended to carry a message. Whereas the crown, the diadem created fear, the Stephanos sent a message and the message was this. The message was a symbolic one which said in effect, the one who receives this crown is to be valued. Is to be appreciated, is to be respected, is to be admired, is to be honored. Why? Because he or she has been victorious in some way. In battle, in competition, even in the realm of politics, it was used. This was the crown that could be given to the to those who believers who were in Smyrna if they remain faithful unto death. And it's called the crown of life because those to whom it would be given have been victorious in life, even up to the point of death. Speaking of believers who were faithful unto death, we are told in Revelation twelve eleven, and they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to death. They did not love their lives to death, but they laid down those lives as a testimony to their faith in Jesus Christ. When that happens, that life isn't wasted. That life is not thrown away. That life is valued by Jesus. And he gives them the crown of life. The world regarded those lives as worthless, of no value. Such faithful and devoted followers of Jesus are often regarded as the dregs of society in some parts of the world. The garbage that needs to be taken out and burned or thrown to the the beast or crucified or shot. But Jesus promises to crown their life in such a way that everyone will look up to them throughout eternity and realize that this life was worth living. Here is a life that was really worth living. This life is precious. It's eternally worthy. It's honored to be honored and respected and valued by all who call Jesus Lord. Now, the crown of life is mentioned in one other place in the Bible where it makes it clear that that crown is available to all of us as well for a different, slightly different reason. It's found in James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. In James 1, it becomes clear that this crown of life is within the reach of every believer. Not just those who suffer horrendous persecution. It will be a reward for... Followers of Christ who have been victorious over their fleshly bodies. They have dealt with sin and evil, which works through the body, through the flesh, as the Bible says, to dominate our life. This is the crown for Christians who have endured the trials and the testings and the temptations, and who have emerged victorious in their battle with the flesh. A crown that will again clearly say, this life was worth living. This life is approved by Jesus Christ. This is a life to be honored and appreciated for all eternity. For every Christian, there's a decision, a challenge that we face. Will I lay down my life for myself or for my Lord Jesus Christ or will I keep it and spend it on myself? Will I lay down my life for myself? Will I spend it for myself? Or will I lay it down and spend it for Jesus Christ? When we spend it for Jesus Christ, He says, I'll give you a crown of life that says your life mattered. Your life counts for eternity. Your life will amount to something in my eyes and forever. Your life has worth and value and significance. Now you may be thinking, and I may be thinking, I can get along without that symbolic wreath. After all, I have eternal life. But Jesus promises he will never take from me. He gave it to me as a gift because I believed in him. And I do believe in him with all my heart. But I know I'm going to heaven. Why deny myself, why deny yourself what our flesh craves in life? So what if I can't have this crown of life? Sounds logical. But think about something for just a moment. Think back over your life. And think about those moments in your life when you felt like you were on top of the world. When you felt so good about yourself and about the life you were living. And in most cases, you're going to find that what was involved was somehow you were being made to feel significant, important, and valued. Your parents put their arm around you when you were a small child, when you did something that pleased them. And they told you how much they loved you and how much you meant to them. And you felt so good. In high school, you received an athletic letter for competition or an award for academic excellence. And your friends applauded. And they looked up to you, and you felt so good. And do you remember how you felt after you received that diploma? It's over, but I'm so glad I did it. I feel good about it. And that that special recognition you received at church for a job well done. Or the citation you received from your boss for an outstanding contribution at work. And you felt so good about it. Even something so small and easily overlooked as that t-shirt that said on Father's Day, world's best dad. Or on Mother's Day, world's best mom. Or that little note of sincere appreciation from somebody out of the blue who's told you just how much they valued your life and how much you meant to them and how much you'd helped them. Didn't that send you into orbit? When I was in seminary, I spent two summers working as a salesman. That's why I made this slip this morning about sales. It's on my mind. It was a big company, about five thousand people, and I'd received an award for being the number one salesman in the company. But I was working with a small group of guys that were seminary guys, and we'd worked together, and they gave me an award that basically was from first Timothy four twelve, where it says, Be thou an example to believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. And they said on that plaque, these qualities mark your example before us. That plaque meant a lot more to me than the number one sales thing. Because the number one sales thing, I knew in their heart, they just wanted me back next year. Make them more money. But these guys had no reason to say that and do that for me apart from the fact that I had made an impact on their life and in my immaturity. That was a wonderful, wonderful thing that I thought about. It encouraged my heart so much. Now, if we could somehow capture the feeling and the sense of elation we experience at the moment these things have happened to us. And we feel so, so high. If we could just capture that for all eternity, then we would begin to understand just a tiny little bit of what it will feel like when our Lord Jesus Christ calls you up or calls me up and puts upon our head a crown of life. And says this life was really worth living. This life was really worth living. This life matters. This life matters. However, for those like the believers in Smyrna, who have suffered much in life because of their faith in Jesus Christ and who remain faithful even unto death. The context of Revelation 2.10 seems to suggest that they will receive their crown with honors. We'll receive a crown of life. But I think the implication from the text there and the fact that this one thing is singled out, it suggests to me that they're going to receive a crown of life with honors. When you get a diploma, it means so much. But when you get a diploma and the person says that reads it, with honors, it means so much more. The wreath the Lord gives to Christians who remain faithful in Smyrna and those who surrendered their lives in a boiling pot of oil in the second and third century or who died on the horns of a wild beast during that time or Christians today who have been abused and Victims of tremendous persecution and cruelty. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a crown that will not only say this person has been victorious over sin and over the flesh, but a person who's been victorious over the cry of life itself, which is to preserve our life at any cost. Our Lord offers the crown of life to those in the church at Smyrna who remain faithful unto death. But for the individual Christian in all ages, in all places, from Smyrna to Mexico and China and Turkey, who struggle with suffering and persecution and even martyrdom, Jesus has something else to add. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear. That is, let him respond and obey to what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Literally, if you put it into bad English, which it should be because that's what it says in Greek. He shall not never be hurt by the second death. The crown of life will indeed be a great reward. Celebrating a life well invested for the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who suffer in this life for the Lord Jesus Christ will also be rewarded in one other way. They will not never be hurt by the second death and that double negative is intended Jesus is not saying that they will not never have to worry about going to hell like other Christians who didn't pers- didn't suffer not only is that contrary to the context it violates what Jesus teaches in so many other places what he's saying though this negative this not never be hurt by the by the second death, and the second death refers to the lake of fire and hell and all the horrors of it, when Jesus says they shall not never be hurt by that, it was a latotes. And you've heard me talk about this before because it comes up often in Scripture and is very important in interpreting the Word of God. Latotes is a way of using understatement in which an affirmative is expressed by the negative to the contrary. Latotes is a form of irony that is meant to emphasize something by understating it. It's the opposite of hyperbole. We use latotes all the time in our language, and you don't even realize it, and neither do I when I use it. Let me just give you a few examples. That's not bad. That's not bad. What do I mean? It's good. That's nothing to seize at, sneeze at. What do I mean? It's something worth looking at. What you did was no small accomplishment. What's that mean? It was a great accomplishment. That was no inconsiderable sum of money. That means that's a lot of money. He's no dummy. means... He's smart. She's not a bad singer means she's an excellent singer. He's not unhappy with what you gave him means he's very appreciative and very happy. You can go on. There's a lot more I have here, but I'm running out of time. Like us, Jesus loved to use latotes. Here's just a few. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. What's he saying there? Clearly he's saying, I will certainly receive him. When he says, I will by no means cast out, meaning the flip side, I will certainly receive him if he comes to me. And Mark, he says, whoever gives a cup of cold water to, to drink in my name because you, are, you belong to Christ. So surely I say to you, He will by no means lose His reward, meaning He will certainly receive a great reward. He used it all the time. And again, I don't have time to go in all the places that He used it. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's that mean? It means He will have a superlative experience of eternal life because eternal life is the flip side the opposite, if you will, of the second death. And if you will not never be hurt by the second death, it's saying by virtue of the figure of speech, you will have an abundant, superlative experience of life. What is the point? I believe it's this. And listen carefully. This is my personal view, and I don't find this in any commentary, so if you don't agree with that, that's okay. But I believe this. Those who have suffered much, lived in poverty, lost loved ones, been physically oppressed, tortured, beaten, damaged to the point it has hurt their health and their life, shortened their life, been in prison and even martyred, all because they stood up and stood out and proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ... Christians who've experienced this kind of life on this earth, I believe, will intensely appreciate and experience eternal life on a level the rest of us will not ever understand. Why is that? Because when you have been deeply deprived in this life because of your faith in Christ, then when you actually see Christ and enter into His presence and into the fullness of eternal life, the intensity of that, that experience will supersede a normal experience of eternal life in proportion to the way you were deprived. How many of you have been on a diet? Ever gone on a diet? How many have ever gone on a diet? Okay, most everybody. Now, I want to tell you something. I go on diets about once a year. I have my fat wardrobe. I have my thin wardrobe. I got to get into the thin wardrobe, It's summer's coming. So I've been on a diet lately. Now, the question is, when you're on a diet and you've deprived yourself of sugar and carbohydrates, and then all of a sudden you taste something that has sugar in it or carbohydrates in it, do you know how good that tastes? Now, before I went on the diet, I could chug down 24 chocolate chip cookies and not blink an eye, and they all seemed to taste alike. But now, if you put one in my mouth, I guarantee you, I would go into orbit. The other night, I tasted just a little carbohydrates. Ooh, did that taste good. I love steak, but it only goes so far. The point I'm trying to make is, when you've been deprived of life, you're going to appreciate life, eternal life, so much more. When Yvonne Nolisti came to California, I remember him coming here. And I remember when I first came here. I came here and I smelled the fresh smells and I saw some things I'd never seen before. And it was a really nice, nice place. I thought people here have it pretty nice. But when Yvonne came here, he saw things I never saw before. He said, the streets are so clean. And the homes are so nice. And you have trees everywhere. They haven't been cut down and used for charcoal. Everything, when he first came to this part of the world, it was like a child in a candy store for the first time. I came from Montana and Ohio. Personally, I liked it in Montana. That was pretty nice. This is nice. But I didn't appreciate it like Yvonne appreciated it. A Californian moves to Hawaii. I'll try to say it right. Versus a couple that have moved from Newfoundland to Hawaii. Now you tell me, who's going to appreciate Hawaii more? It's like that with eternal life. Who will have the most intense experience of eternal life? Polycarp who was burned at the stake for his faith? Or Saddleback Sam who struggle has been basically to try to keep up with the Joneses? Who's going to have the most intense experience of eternal life? In fact, this whole idea has been driven home to me a number of years ago by a person in our church who came to me right after I came here. I was maybe a week or so into my first year of ministry, and he said, I want to tell you a joke. He said, okay. He said there was three men from different parts of the country, that three believers who died and went to heaven. The first believer was from Michigan. And he went to heaven, and he met St. Peter, and St. Peter leaned over and whispered in his ear, and he says, Oh, you're going to love it here. The weather is so, so nice here in heaven. Come on in. And he went in with anticipation. The second believer was from Arizona. And he comes to St. Peter, a nice believer from Arizona, and he says, Oh, I'm looking forward to it. He says, you, whispers in his ear, you won't believe the river of life. It is just such a beautiful thing. It's got trees all around it, and it's just such a beautiful place to be. You will really enjoy it. And the man, the believer from Arizona, said, oh, I'm looking forward to it. And then there was a man that came, a believer from Southern California. And he came to heaven. And he met St. Peter. And St. Peter reached over in his ear and he says, you won't like it here very much. You won't like it here very much. Now let that sink in a minute. It took a while for me to get it too. Dearly beloved, are we into celebrating life here in Southern California? Or are we looking forward to celebrating life with our Lord forever? It will have an awful lot to do with how we live our life on this earth. Father, I pray that you would take your word and use it in a way that would powerfully impact us as only you can, because it's your words, not mine. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with uh, hymn number 648.